I will be honest with you and tell you that the work of preaching through the Psalms, I haven't been doing it very long, but man, it pumps me up. I am so excited to keep preaching through the Psalms. I hope you are too, and if not, at least meet me halfway and say it's moderately exciting. We'll get along together just fine. I'll convince you to come the rest of the way with me as we go. But there, God has packed so much uh, uh, power and strength and joy and hope and steadiness for us in the midst of these psalms. And in an age that is particularly seized with anxiety and depression and fear like we've never seen before, uh, has there ever been a time more so than now, maybe in the last few centuries, when we have needed these songs? Uh, I submit to you the answer is no. Uh, if you want to disagree with me about it, the coffee's on me. Just let me know. We'll get together. But I want to start this morning not by reading our sermon text, actually. I want to take you to a, a different place before we begin. Uh, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible, to have it open to Psalm 22. The, um, our kind of initial walk through the text, uh, which I don't normally do, I'll, I'll kind of do a walk through with some commentary as we go through Psalm 22 together and then move into the sermon proper. Uh, but, but have your Bibles open to Psalm 22 as we go. The other text that I'll grab as we go will be on the screen. Psalm 22 will only be on the screen once, though, generally speaking. So we are starting this morning, though, up here in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. And so what's happening at this point in the Gospel of Matthew is that Jesus is on the cross and He is dying. And so we read that from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Suffice it to say, it was too early for it to be dark outside. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we started this series, I began by preaching Psalm 1, how blessed is the man. Then Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? And I told you that almost every other psalm in the Psalter echoes Psalm 1. It's about righteous living, godly obedience, not walking in the way of the fool, etc. Or it echoes Psalm 2, it's about the messianic king. It is perhaps appropriate that Psalm 22 in the Psalter is 2-2 because it is the psalm 2 psalm in the whole thing. Okay? It is almost more Psalm 2 than Psalm 2 is. The psalm brings all the weight of messianic expectation to bear. It is as potent, you might say, as Isaiah 53, if you're familiar with that text, in terms of uh, what we might call Passion Week and, and Jesus going to the cross. Now before I read Psalm 22, I, I simply want to point out that it's weird, and most commentators agree it's weird, that David of all people would write this. You see at the start of the psalm, to the choir master, according to Doe of the Dawn, a psalm of David. Okay, A psalm of utter divine forsakenness. Now, a psalm of lament, no surprise there. David wrote those, and David had moments in his life where lamentation was fitting. But this is not just a lament psalm. This is, this is an execution psalm. Like going to the executioner. So when did David ever face all that? 
Short answer, far as we know, he didn't. Not to the degree described in Psalm 22. And so it seems that this psalm was written with messianic expectation, maybe perhaps in a way David didn't even know. But it is quoted by Jesus on the cross. And so while, in a real sense, every psalm is a song of Christ, this one has a special mark of importance on it. Because the Son of God, while dying by crucifixion, which you might know kills you by slowly robbing you of breath, the ability to exhale actually, He chose to use what little air He had to cry out with these words. I'm going to say that's pretty important. There's one more observation I want to make before we go to Psalm 22. The Psalms in the ancient world were not usually known by number. I won't say they never were known by number, but but not so much known by number as they were known by the first verse. Okay, so in the same way we might use the first verse of a hymn to identify the hymn. So my, my favorite hymn of all time, I'm pretty sure, is How Firm a Foundation. Also happens to be the first words. Also happens to be the title. And if you think about it, if I found myself in the midst of some trial or affliction, and I lifted up my head and quietly said, How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. Right? I am most certainly taking comfort in the words in that first line, in that first sentence, but it is the first line that calls the whole thing to mind, right? It's the first line that caused the whole, caused the whole thing to mind. So you could, you could rightly go through the rest of the hymn and assume that the rest of it is comforting me too. So I want to insist that when Jesus quotes this psalm, he's also quote, He is quoting the title, yes. He also means to be, as, you, uh, if, as it were, walking through the whole thing. The whole psalm speaks to the atonement of Christ, His work on the cross. And so as we walk through it together in just a moment, I want you to hear the whole thing as Jesus' words from the cross. Okay, Jesus' words from the cross. So with that, let's read it. To the choir master. So that means they sang it at the very least. If it's for the choir master, that means it's for singing. All of them are for singing, of course. There's just something about giving that address that tells you this one was probably special. According to Doe of the Dawn, that's probably the tune, though, far as I know, it's lost to us now. A Psalm of David, which, again, certainly is. This one being particularly potent in terms of its messianic prophecy. So verse 1, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. It sounds like Psalm 13, doesn't it? Verse 2, he receives no answer. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, I find no rest. Verse 3, he proclaims faith anyway. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Verses 4 and 5, he recounts history. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. We saw this in Psalm 13. We see it here again in Psalm 22. Apparently, God thinks it's important that you and I develop the discipline of quoting back to God His own works and His own faithfulness in our songs and in our prayers. So Jesus, the Son, 
prays to his Father, knowing that in the past he has intervened, right? Even though right now that's not happening. In fact, he's getting openly mocked. Verse 6, I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. So this is an expression speaking of like shaking your head or putting your face in your hands or things like that. He trusts in the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him. For He delights in Him. This is the mockery. So you might read it as, He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord deliver Him then if He's really God's man. And so this is the same kind of mockery again that was happening at the foot of the cross, then what does he do? He turns back again to remember God's faithfulness throughout his life. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. Only on you, excuse me, was I cast from my birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. I thought it was impossible for us to trust Jesus that early. <laughs> Apparently not. Verse 11, he renews his request. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. He's still crying out to God. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me, you lay me in the dust of death. And so, in this we are taken to the foot of the cross, aren't we? Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet for heaven's sake. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. Again, a direct fulfillment of prophecy. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. If you know the Gospel account, you know that that was happening. That they, the, the soldiers were, were casting lots, gambling for Jesus' clothes. So we're at the foot of the cross. We like to talk about going to the foot of the cross like it's a good thing, but it is a rather horrific thing you see in this text. He then continues to plead, But you, O Lord, do not be far off. Come quickly, my help, to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. You begin to see here, though, Oh, sorry, sorry, I'm ahead of myself. So this psalm, as you can see, doesn't just lament, it wails. This psalm doesn't just ask, it begs. But it also turns. You might say there's a key change beginning in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, apparently he's going back to church at some point, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise Him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify Him. That's a call to worship. Stand in awe of Him, all you offspring of Israel. For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden His face from Him, but He's heard when He cried to Him. And again, 
I, I want you to see a movement here from despair to hope and to faith. We're moving from terror to triumph. And I want you to imagine Jesus Christ praying this psalm on the cross. And right there, it tells us something. The fact that Jesus quoted this tells us something about the beauty of of psalm praying and psalm singing because we're talking about crucifixion, right? Which crushes your body, robs you of breath, and then in this moment there are thorns in Jesus' skull and, and nails in His hands and His blood is falling to the ground. And do you really think in that moment any man would have had the strength to remember much? Do you think in those moments a man could have recalled the shopping list from last week? Or reflected on the weather of the previous day? No. When you are in that kind of agony, there's very little your brain has access to beyond what is most deeply, foundationally rooted in your heart. It's like when someone calls 911 and their loved one is on the floor, suffering, maybe dying. They need an ambulance now. If their first language, let's say it's Spanish and not English, maybe they're pretty fluent in English, but all that's going to come out is Spanish in that moment. Okay, if you know anything about being bilingual, you know that's the case. That 911 operator had better know Spanish or put a fluent speaker on the line fast because you're not going to get a word of English out of that panicked caller. Because they're in crisis, they need help, they're in the moment of agony, and they are not thinking, oh, I shall now, I shall now take my concerns, such as they are, and translate them into English. Hmm, what's the right word for that again? No, no, it's just, all that's going to come out is the overflow, the heart language. All that's coming out is the most fundamental core words of their heart. And Jesus, apparently, the Son of God, is so rooted in singing His Psalter that in the moment of agony, He speaks His heart language and Psalm 22 is what starts coming out. It's part of why we're singing psalms right now. Because when you get squeezed by the trials of life, what's going to just come out, what's going to be spilling out of you, is what is already most deeply rooted in you. It's why when people are, are fighting, I mean, if you, if you struggle with like the sin of angry outbursts, you have to realize that that's not a matter of getting the outburst under control so much as it is looking at what, what is, what's the material inside me that is spilling out in the unguarded moment. So as I said, verse 22 marks this turn. If you'll go with me there. From you comes my Praise, so I'm just, uh, verse 25, sorry. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear Him. So you hear the, the future aspect of hope. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. In the midst of the agony, the cry of David and the cry of Christ is that one day all the nations will worship the God 
of the universe. Can you think of more anything more appropriate for Jesus to be expressing on the cross than the hope that all the nations will be brought in? The promise that all the nations will be brought in. Look at verse 29. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before Him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity, that is, children, generations shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. And again we say, thanks be to God. So there are about a thousand years between when David wrote this psalm and when Jesus spoke it on the cross. About a thousand years. That's about the time, just to give you perspective, between you and I and the Crusades. Okay? What I want to emphasize to you is that it is not as though Jesus' disciples planned for all of these events to come together. All of the events of Good Friday so that they matched up with Psalm 22. In fact, we're told in Acts 4 that it was Jesus' enemies who brought this about. You remember that? That as the enemies of Christ were gathered together against the Lord and against His anointed, Psalm 2. And these enemies included Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Jesus Christ on the cross, is securing our greatest hope and meeting our greatest need. Namely, the forgiveness of our sins. If you ever say in your heart, you know, I'm doing alright. Forgiveness of sins is just not what I need this week. Right? Okay, just come on down and, and repent of the sin of pride and Jesus will forgive you. Jesus said in John 12.32, when I am lifted up, a reference to the crucifixion, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to Myself. And indeed, the lifted up Lord Jesus, the crucified Lord Jesus, will draw men, will draw people to Himself. Because the crucified Lord is dealing with our greatest problem, namely sin in all of its bloody detail. And maybe when I preach on something like this, maybe if you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ, I've got plenty of issues with the movie, if I'm honest, apart from just general concerns about images of God and the second commandment. There's obviously quite a lot added into that movie that the New Testament does not say. A lot more added in than that's in the New Testament accounts. Which, on the one hand, you think, okay, that might be okay. Maybe it's just a bit of artistic flourish or, you know, uh, trying, to, trying to make the movie into a movie. So you have to add content. However, the, until you find out the reason why Mel Gibson added all that stuff is because some merry worshiping mystic in Spain claimed that she was having visions of the crucifixion and how it all really went down and that her visions include a lot of stuff that God left out of the Bible. So Mel Gibson fixed the problem by uh, putting all that stuff in his movie. Yikes. However, that being said, what the film most certainly got right is the raw horror of it all. Jesus going to the cross, being mocked by His enemies. His enemies tearing at His body and His soul like dogs and bulls and beasts. If you look back at verse 12, many bulls encompass Me, strong bulls of Bashan surround Me. They open wide their mouths like a ravening and roaring lion. 
If you wonder what, what bulls of Bashan, what does that mean? What, what good does that do for any of us? Well, well, Bashan was a very fertile region east of the Jordan River. And if you have, I mean, if you have super fertile land, you're going to have super fat cattle. They're going to eat really well. So bulls of Bashan means big, fat, terrifying animals that have been, what, pounding protein shakes and doing a lot of CrossFit. Just really terrifying creatures. And that language is prophetically used of Jesus' enemies at the cross to emphasize the strength of the terror. And this horror is how God accomplishes the salvation, the forgiveness of sins and the salvation of all of the world. And to this day, is drawing all men to Himself by the crucified Lord Jesus. What I want you to see is that the words of Psalm 22 guide us into an understanding of the cross that I think, I think, escapes us a lot of the time. We tend to think of the cross as the great defeat and the resurrection as the great victory. And there is truth to that, humanly speaking. That is, the the cross certainly looked like a defeat, appeared as a defeat, was celebrated as a defeat uh, by Jesus' enemies. But if it was only a defeat... I would suggest to you, suggest, it is speculation, that Jesus should have quoted Psalm 88 instead of Psalm 22. I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 88, but it's one of the few psalms that does not have a happy ending. Psalm 88 just ends in cold darkness. Not Psalm 22, which turns at verse 22 to triumphantly proclaim that the nations will turn and remember their Lord and His righteousness will be proclaimed to future generations you see jesus christ on the cross is winning in that moment of agony he was winning he was triumphing now his enemies had no clue in fact paul in first corinthians chapter 2 verse 8 paul tells us in first corinthians that if they had known if the rulers of this age would have understood that they would not have crucified the lord of glory they had no clue But here in Psalm 22 and in the Matthew text that we started with, we see Christ forsaken. He cries out, why have you forsaken me? Well, what do we do with that? How is it that the Son of God could be forsaken by God the Father? Okay, let's start at just baseline what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that... um, there was, uh, there was actual, I might just say, actual separation in the Trinity. Uh, otherwise, the whole universe would have unraveled. What does it mean? What it does mean, excuse me, is that in some mysterious way, the fellowship between the incarnate Son, the enfleshed Son, the on the cross Son, and the Father had been broken. The incarnate Son, Jesus Christ, who had for all of His earthly human life enjoyed perfect fellowship with His Father, right? In fact, since the manger in Bethlehem. Did you catch that? Verse 9. You are He who took me from the womb. Okay. So He's, he's been enjoying fellowship with His Father, the, the enfleshed Christ has, from birth. On you I was cast from birth, verse 10. And He is now experiencing forsakenness. 
In some mysterious way, the Father turns His face away experientially for the Son. Even as verse 24 says, For He has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and He has not hidden His face from Him. Well, if you read the first half of the psalm, it's like, well, yeah, He did. (laughs) That's why you have to have both parts of the psalm. So we see hope bound up with despair here. They're bound together on the lips of Christ. How do we know that hope is still present? Well, because he's quoting Scripture. And he starts with, my God, my God. Right? You need both parts of this. You need, Why have you forsaken me? Is a cry that can come out on your lips and in your heart in the affliction and trials of life. As a sincere perception and understanding of what it is you're walking through. But don't say it without my God, my God. Okay? What I want you to see is that Jesus invokes that first verse of Psalm 22. He's not only invoking the despair, He's invoking the triumphant victory of my God, my God. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us something very helpful here. Therefore, since we are surrounded... By so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, doing what? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so the starter and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Hebrews tells us that for the joy that was set before Him, He endured this. What was the joy that was set before Jesus? I want all of you to know this answer. I'll try to, I'll try to season it into future sermons as well. But when I say, what is the joy that God laid before Jesus, or that Jesus fixed His eyes on, you get to say, me! <laughs> it was you, Christian. It was you and your children. It was you and your city. It's you and your nation. You and all the nations, in fact. Verse 27 of Psalm 22, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. Why? Verse 28, For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations. On the cross, the Son of God was not losing. He was winning. He was securing His kingship over every nation on earth. The same nations, by the way, that Satan offered to give to Him back in Matthew chapter 4. Do you remember? Do we have that one? Matthew 4? Yeah. Satan said to him, All of these I will give you. All these kingdoms I will give you if you fall down and worship Me. Jesus told him no. To put it nicely. Jesus didn't put it nicely. But do you know why? you know why He said no? Because He meant to take them. I'm not going to take them from you. I mean to take them from you. And on the cross, He found the endurance to suffer for the joy that was laid before Him, which is the possession of all the nations, but it's also you. 
Paul said in Galatians 2.20 that Jesus, Paul says, Jesus loved me and gave himself up for me. So we get to know and confess that the king of the nations is Jesus Christ. He is also the savior and judge of individuals. On the last day, you will not face Jesus as a nation, as an American. You will not face Jesus as a Louisianan. You will not even face Jesus, properly speaking, as like a member of your household. You will face Jesus, the King, as an individual. And that is why he went to the cross. You see, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, Jesus never sinned. So if there was any thought crowding into your, to your head when you hear the words of Psalm 22 and you're like, are you sure we're allowed to pray like that? Jesus, <laughs> Jesus started it. <laughs> well, David started it and Jesus carried it on. Even in that moment, when his fellowship with his father as the enfleshed incarnate son was mysteriously interrupted, he still never sinned. But on the cross, all the sins of his people were placed on Him. Don't move away from that too quickly. All of your lying, all of your lusting with screens and pictures and untamed, unguarded eyes, all of your coveting and bitterness over the life God has given you, all of your petty anger that causes you to withhold love from your neighbor, to withhold love from your wife, to withhold respect from your husband, all of your squabbling and your obsession with yourself, all of your high-minded reasons why God's words are not good enough for what you're going through, all of your bitter demanding of God that He must give you the things you want or the feelings you want or the wife or husband you want on your time, all of your hatred in your heart for your neighbor, all of your arrogant disobedience of your parents, all of your pompous mockery of God's people, all of your cynicism about those who are older than you, all of your dismissal of those who are younger than you. All of it was put on Christ who knew no sin but was made to know all of yours for your sake. But that is not the end of the story. Because just as your sin was put on Christ, so, the perfect obedience that he had from day one, from my mother's womb, verse 9 of Psalm 22, is given to you as a gift to all who believe. We call this a double imputation. Okay? That, that Christ gets all of my sin and I get all of his righteousness. So that we might say with John the baptizer, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He takes it into himself. And then he dies. And he gets up out of the grave. 
But when he gets up out of the grave, all your sin remains buried. It doesn't get up with him. Paul says, how can we who died to sin then still live in it? Right? This is why the calling comes to us as Christians to be constantly killing our sin. To be killing it. To be killing your sin. That's your relationship to, uh, like your relationship to your sin is not, is not one of, of flirtation or curiosity. Your relationship to your sin is hitman. Just, I mean, out and out. I, I, it, it's going to die. So our calling is to, if you want to put it this way, to suffocate our sin. To be depriving it of its food. To be depriving our eyes of, of our lust. To be depriving our ears of our gossip and complaining. To be depriving our minds of fantasies where we feed our anger or strengthen our coveting or stimulate our ingratitude over what God has given us. So when we come to the cross, when we come to the cross through the words of Psalm 22, And in a moment, through the body and blood of our Lord at His table, we are coming with a confident confession on our lips. And it's a confession and a confidence that are given to us by words from God, like Psalm 22. As we're going to sing in a moment, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father turned His face away so that you, Christian, could declare, so that you and I could declare, verse 24, He has not hidden His face from me. Jesus has secured that confession for you forever. What the victory of Jesus means is that Jesus on the cross was forsaken so that you could be forever certain that your forsakenness is fake. (laughs) That your forsakenness is only apparent or it only seems this way. Jesus took on all of our sin and failure and the very possibility of divine abandonment. I don't mean that there won't be times where you'll feel abandoned. In those moments, you can and, and you should cry out to God with the words of Psalm 22. You must also remember that your feelings are not reliable measures of God's love or God's goodness or God's favor or God's presence or God's anything because Jesus has already absorbed all the wrath and abandonment of God for His children so that we may forever confess there is therefore now no condemnation. And so we come to this table today. Confident of our God who turns the tables and wins. Our children and our grandchildren will yet serve Him. They will come to proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. If you want to know what, my, what, what I'm doing here in Alexandria with the help of your elders and deacons, what's, what's my purpose for being here? To be close to family, that's nice. To fellowship with all of you, that's really nice. I really, like, I really enjoy all of that. But if the Lord wills, my long-term goal is to see us grow together into a congregation and a community where my grandchildren can join us for worship. That's the end game. That's the whole in game. 
that my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren will be worshiping. And this is what our God means to give us. And when we come up against affliction, He's given us words to confess. He's given us words to confess so that we can be delivered, so that we can lift up our praises. And then we can come to the table, verse 26, and hear this good news. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek Him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Indeed, may we continue to pray and to preach, to encourage one another, to grow together as we see that our children and grandchildren will yet serve Him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn that He has done it, and it is His kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen. Our Father, we thank you that you are gathering all the nations to yourself and ask that you would fit us for the work ahead. Give us a sense, Lord, of of the neighbors who are in need around us as we come together and feast this morning at your table. Pray that we would be mindful of the ways that we might serve others. Thank you for meeting us here. Oh God, our great joy. In Jesus' name. Amen.